Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. As I continued to work on a few other episodes, I'd begun to write a suture tale on the 18th century surgeon anatomist Antonio Scarpa. But the more research I did, the more I discovered and realized that there was enough for a standalone episode. So I split the difference and called this a bonus suture tale. I hope you enjoy it as we take this topic head on in this episode of Legends of Surgery. This topic actually came as a suggestion from Rohit Dasgupta, a third-year general surgery resident, thank you for that, and is a fascinating story. Antonio Scarpa was born in Lorenzaga di Mota di Livenza in the northeast of Italy. The exact date is uncertain, but from what I've read, the agreed-upon date is May 19, 1752. So we'll go with that. He showed himself to be a bright and inquisitive student early on, and there's one story that, as a guest of his aunt, He systematically dissected chickens to examine their internal organs, a behavior that may not go over quite the same way today. Scarpa entered medical school at the University of Padua at the tender age of 14. He was mentored by the great Giovanni Battista Morgagni, father of modern anatomic pathology, who was in his mid-80s when Scarpa arrived in Padua. Now let's just take a minute to cover him. Another example of Suture Tale's inception, a tale within a tale. Personally, I am familiar with this name from the hydatid of Morgagni, a cyst-like lesion which can be found on the testis or fallopian tube, but didn't know much about the person behind it. In fact, I used to pronounce it Morgagni until I looked it up for this episode. So who was he? Well, Giovanni Battista Morgagni was born in 1682 in Forli, Italy, studied medicine at Bologna, and worked under Antonio Maria Valsalva there as prosector in anatomy, and later became a professor at Padua. He spent the remainder of his career there and was very popular with his students and contributed much to anatomical knowledge. However, I want to cover his most important contribution, his magnum opus, which is actually Latin for great work. Same root word as opera, meaning a work or effort, and most relevantly, operation, an action, performance, or work. Now you know. Anyways, this was a five-volume tome called De Cetibus et Cossus Morborum per Anatomen Inagatis Libri Quinque, which translates to The Seats and Causes of Disease Investigated by Anatomy in Five Books. This has been described as one of the most fundamental important works in the history of medicine. So let's talk about why that would be. The books compiled the pathological observations made by Morgagni from around 700 autopsies. Many of the deceased had been his patients in life and covered a wide array of conditions. The first three volumes covered diseases of the head and neck, thorax and abdomen. The fourth described general diseases, and the fifth was a supplement, with corrections for the first four volumes, as well as new observations and clinical experiences. The patients came from all segments of society and included bishops, cardinals, nuns, highwaymen, malefactors, thieves, and merchants. This series may be the first attempt to correlate anti-mortem or before-death symptoms with post-mortem or after-death findings. Rather than the long-held theories of Hippocrates and Galen, where the balance of the four humors was the basis for understanding disease, Morgagni took the approach that the human body was, quote, a machine composed of several devices, or organs, each entrusted with a specific function, and there was an interrelated composite relationship between the individual organs which drives the machine or the human body. Hence, a defect or lesion in one of the devices would lead to a specific mechanical problem or disease that would in turn affect the overall performance of the machine, the human body, end quote. 
Or to use more medical terms, it was the anatomical lesion in an organ, or pathology, which leads to dysfunction of the human body, which presented as the expression of a disease process. Now, that may seem obvious to us in the 21st century, but this correlation of clinical symptoms of a disease evident in the living with the changes observed in the organs at autopsy was a radical concept at the time and proved to be a critical turning point in the history of medicine. Amazing. But let's get back to Scarpa. A Morgagni, near the end of his career, saw potential in Scarpa and made him his personal secretary and assistant. Scarpa began by organizing and participating in Morgagni's lectures, and by 1770, at the age of 18, he graduated magna cum laude. By 1772, with the help of his benefactor Morgagni, Scarpa became professor of anatomy and surgery at the University of Modena in Italy, where he stayed for a decade. However, prior to taking up this appointment, Scarpa did what so many young physicians did in this era. He toured Europe, visiting the Netherlands, France, and England, where he met and studied with Percival Pott and John and William Hunter. By 1775, Scarpa had become professor of obstetrics and gynecology and the chief surgeon of the army hospital in Modena. After a successful beginning to his career, the Holy Roman Emperor Joseph II offered Scarpa the chair of anatomy and surgery at the University of Pavia, Italy. Beginning in 1783, Scarpa would spend the remainder of his career there. Within the first two years of Pavia, Scarpa inaugurated a new anatomic theater built to his specifications with anatomy lectures and demonstrations in mind, officially opening on October 31, 1785. On the vault of the theater, there is a fresco with the figures of Iapea, or medicine, shaking hands with Kipopia, surgery, demonstrating the importance of relations between the specialties. Look up some images. It's a stunningly beautiful building. It does seem like you could visit it, or at least up to fairly recently, but I can't tell if it's still open to visitors. Anyways, Scarpa also got permission from the emperor to transport bodies of recently deceased patients from the hospital to the medical school for dissections. This provided him with a large body of material, pun intended, to study and examine in his lectures. Every theoretical description of an anatomical concept would be followed by a demonstration through dissection. Scarpa encouraged his students to dissect cadavers to learn through experience, and his anatomy course became extremely popular, attracting students from across Europe. In fact, his students and colleagues called him Magister Eloquentia Maxima, or Master of the Highest Oratory Art, and many of his lectures were collected into a manuscript by his students. Scarpa considered himself to be a combination of anatomist and surgeon. Here are a couple of quotes from the man himself on the subject, quote, Bright progress obtained by surgery in our times is nothing but the simple result of anatomopathological observations, end quote. And, quote, The one who is not a skilled anatomist cannot be a brilliant surgeon, end quote. Now, while obviously a gifted and knowledgeable teacher, Scarpa was also known to be ruthless and harsh, slandering and banishing any and all challengers to his position of authority. He would even go so far as to spread rumors of their alleged criminal activities. For example, he had a famous biologist named Lazaro Spallanzani, who was a professor at the University of Pavia, prosecuted for a groundless charge of burglary. Scarpa actively sought power, money, and fame, and was feared and hated by many. He had few friends, although one was the famous physicist Alessandro Volta, inventor of the electric pile and source of our word volt. The two of them toured Europe together, giving lectures on their respective discoveries. Over time, Scarpa amassed a fortune, much of which he spent collecting a considerable art gallery of enormous worth. I did come across a funny story about his arrogant and haughty nature. 
While in Paris during one of his educational tours through Europe, Scarpa was called for a consultation to Napoleon's palace and was presented with an ornate set of silver surgical instruments with ivory handles. Asked to wait outside Napoleon's private apartments, after a few minutes he abruptly left, slamming the door and shouting, Tell the emperor that Scarpa cannot be kept waiting for anybody. And that was not his first encounter with Napoleon. In 1805, after being crowned king of Italy, Napoleon visited Pavia and inquired about the renowned anatomist Scarpa. Upon learning that he had been dismissed from the university because of his refusal to swear allegiance to the new king, Napoleon ordered that he be reinstated his position. I guess two tyrants recognizing game. The Scarpa never married, although it was rumored that he had fathered a number of illegitimate children. He also apparently favored some of them for positions at the university. One was named Giuseppe Jacobi, whom he appointed to the chair of anatomy and physiology when he was still a student. This earned the young man a salary and various emoluments from the government. Scarpa semi-retired in 1813 due to failing vision, but continued as director of the medical faculty and president of anatomic studies until 1831 at the age of 80. On the morning of October 31, 1832, he died of renal failure caused by a kidney stone at his house in Pavia. Fun fact, today the street the house was on is called Via Scarpa. After the funeral, two of his disciples, Carlo Bialcini and Mauro Rusconi, performed an autopsy. As there was no spouse to dictate his wishes, the assistants took it upon themselves to remove his index fingers, thumbs, urinary tract, and, as you may have guessed from the title of this episode, his head. These were preserved in formaldehyde, and all but the head were placed on display at the university's anatomy museum. The head remained hidden for about a century, until the current museum was founded, and then was put on public display where you can still see it to this day. Now, you may be asking yourself why his assistants did this. The reason they gave was, quote, the idea not to allow the earth to appropriate all of the mortal remains of a man celebrated throughout Europe, end quote. Although some have speculated that it was revenge upon an unpopular man. And further to that, soon after his death, a marble statue of Scarpa was defaced, demonstrating that he was not exactly universally loved. But there's no question that he made significant contributions to anatomy and surgery. So let's cover those now. As is common for anatomists in this era, Scarpa had a number of eponymously named medical terms. At least ten, in fact, that I could find. These include Scarpa's fascia, fluid, foramina, ganglion, hiatus, membrane, sheath, shoe, staphyloma, and triangle. Now, rather than go through each one, we'll instead take a look at his contributions through the lens of a few different surgical specialties. So let's begin with neuroanatomy, as despite everyone knowing his name from the fascia, this is actually the area where he made the most contributions. Specifically, Scarpa provided thorough descriptions of the inner ear, including the first description of the vestibular ganglion, which is also known today as Scarpa's ganglion. This is part of the vestibulocochlear nerve, or the eighth cranial nerve. The cochlear portion senses hearing, and the vestibular part senses balance from the inner ear. So, who cares? What is the clinical significance of Scarpa's ganglion? Well, in Meniere's disease, which causes vertigo, feeling off balance, tinnitus, or ringing in the ears, and hearing loss, which was named for the French physician Prosper Meniere, who described it in a paper in 1861, a vestibular neurectomy, or cutting of the nerve, including removal of the ganglion, can be performed for intractable cases, with reasonable success. This was actually first performed in 1904 by a Scottish surgeon named R.H. Perry at the Victoria Infirmary in Glasgow. 
Scarpa also discovered the membranous labyrinth, the series of fluid-filled tubes and chambers which provide us with a sense of equilibrium by detecting position and motion. He also described the liquid it contains, Scarpa's fluid, although most sources refer to it as endolymph now. He also published the first ophthalmology textbook written in Italian and was responsible for the foundation of the Ophthalmological Institute at the University of Pavia in 1818. Scarpa was the first to describe tumors of the optic pathway. He described treatment of cataracts by depression rather than extraction and a method of making artificial pupils, as well as surgical treatment of dropsy of the eyeball, which is edema or fluid accumulation. A quick side note here. Why do we call edema dropsy? It was a contraction of the Latin word hydropsis, which itself comes from the Greek hydrops, root word hydro, which means water. You may recall one of the symptoms of rabies infections is hydrophobia, and the disease itself can be sometimes called that, which literally means a fear of water. Patients have difficulty swallowing and panic when presented with liquid to drink. Even the suggestion of drinking can cause painful spasms of the muscles of the throat and larynx. Now, I live in the Canadian province of Ontario, where we call our electricity services hydro, which confused me as a kid, but I've since learned that it's because we generate much of our electricity from Niagara Falls, so it's power from water. The more you know. Let's move on to orthopedics. Scarpa wrote about the cellular structure of bones, studied the physiology and pathologic conditions of bone, and described the conservative treatment of congenital clubfoot in children, which I briefly mentioned in episode 72 on clubfoot, which is where Scarpa's shoe comes from. But Scarpa's surgical practice focused on the treatment of aneurysms, hernia operations, and pediatric surgery. He distinguished between true and false aneurysms and was one of the first to draw attention to the development of atherosclerosis within arteries. He showed that aneurysms were not simply a dilated segment of a normal artery, but rather a result of localized disease of the arterial wall. He was the first to describe sliding inguinal hernias in 1821, which is a protrusion of abdominal organs such as bowel, bladder, or appendix into the hernia sac. Scarpa also described an area for accessing the femoral artery in a treatise on arterial ligatures, which was bordered by the sartorius muscle laterally, the adductor longus muscle medially, and the inguinal ligament superiorly forming a triangle. This is, in fact, Scarpa's triangle, a.k.a. the femoral triangle. Finally, last but not least, of course, is Scarpa's fascia. What I found really interesting about this is that, despite it being his most well-known eponym, Scarpa's identification of this layer is a bit vague, and even that may be overly generous. His description of the membranous superficial fascia, as it is also known, comes from a monograph on hernias that was published in 1809. In fact, life-sized illustrations included by Scarpa did not identify the layer at all. Its only description comes from the text, which discusses femoral or curl hernia in the male. Scarpa describes that, quote, below the skin we find a layer of condensed substance forming the second covering of the hernia, which adheres to the aponeurosis of the fascia lata, end quote. And later in the text, he states that this layer is membranous, and that it has a role in containing this type of hernia, which is no longer uh, believed today. The following year, 1810, Irish surgeon Abraham Coley's, of Coley's fracture of the distal radius fame, described a detailed dissection of the membranous superficial fascia in the lower abdomen and the inguinal perineal region, including the penis and scrotum. Now, this was important clinically, as this layer limited the subcutaneous extravasation, or spread under the skin, of urine from a ruptured urethra. And in fact, this extension of Scarpa's fascia into the perineum is called Coley's fascia. 
Other clinical presentations associated with this membranous superficial fascia are Cullen's sign and Gray-Turner's sign. Now, Cullen was a Canadian-born gynecologist at Johns Hopkins who described edema and bruising around the umbilicus in a patient with ruptured ectopic pregnancy in 1916, also known as periumbilical ecchymosis. We now know this is due to tracking of blood from the retroperitoneum along the gastrohepatic and falciform ligaments and can be due to a number of diseases, most commonly acute hemorrhagic pancreatitis. Gray-Turner's sign refers to bruising of the flanks and is another indication of retroperitoneal hemorrhage and again commonly associated with pancreatitis. Now the name is not because two people described it, but rather it's named after English surgeon George Gray-Turner. Okay, so what do we learn in this bonus Suture Tale episode? Well, Antonio Scarpa was a towering figure in the burgeoning study of anatomy in the late 18th and early 19th century Italy. His contributions were extensive, and perhaps ironically, the most famous, his fascia, was one he worked on the least. Known as a tyrannical character, his own assistants preserved his head, among other parts, in a jar, which can still be visited today. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll get back to some more regularly scheduled programming. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes, and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening.